Welcome to another week of Mum or No, with me, Claire Wind, midwife and mum. Join me each week as we delve into topics from conception to kids in kindy with the aim to become confident and well-informed mums. If you plan on or have ever attended an antenatal or birth class, then you're bound to have heard about the hormones of labour. To be well-informed and really know what to expect of labour and birth, a general understanding of the hormones involved is essential. It can feel a bit technical and sciencey, I get that. And if you're anything like me, I was stoked to get to year 11 and never have to think about science again. But by getting a little into knowing the ins and outs of some of our body's hormones, uh, you can kind of properly prepare for labor, understanding what's going on in your body and using that information to help you work with your body towards a positive birth experience. Decisions you make about the care you receive can either help or hinder how these hormones work. So I think it's really important to understand how they work, why they're important, and how they may be disrupted so that you can make informed decisions. Both the mother and the baby's bodies make birth hormones, which, if left undisturbed, work together to ensure labor and birth progress smoothly. So these hormones have a number of roles, um, preparing your body to give birth, starting labor, preparing the baby for labor and life once it's born, uh, preparing the mother's breast to feed a baby and building a bond of love between mother and baby. So today we'll cover the four main hormones of labor and they are uh, oxytocin, endorphins, uh, adrenaline and prolactin. So let's start with oxytocin. I've touched on it in a number of episodes already, but oxytocin is known as the hormone of love. It's the hormone that is released with orgasm or with heated romantic beautiful kisses or when you've had that warm rush of heat up your body after you've watched your kids do something beautiful and you just feel so in love with them. Uh, But it's also responsible for contractions in labor and the milk milk ejection letdown reflex when breastfeeding. As your pregnancy progresses, oxytocin receptors within the body increase, preparing your body for labor. Oxytocin is what causes the uterus contract, which then thins out and dilates the cervix, pushes the baby lower and lower out of the birth canal to be born. And levels of oxytocin increase gradually in the labor and peak just after the birth. As the baby's pushed onto the mother's cervix and pelvic floor, there are stretch receptors there that trigger a further increase in oxytocin levels in this kind of cyclical manner, which then increases and strengthens those contractions. And then with the highest level of oxytocin occurring at birth, often women feel a sense of alertness uh, and elation uh, as their baby's born. And people, you may have heard this referred to as a post-birth high. Oxytocin is also present in the baby at birth, which is really cool, and actually remains elevated for babies for the first four or five days, which can help with the bonding between mum and baby as they get to know each other. Uh, oxytocin, as I mentioned, is also responsible for the letdown reflex while breastfeeding. So baby's born, hopefully is brought onto mum's bare chest at birth for skin-to-skin time and then to initiate a first breastfeed. And then on top of contracting the uterus to expel the baby, uh, oxytocin also continues to work on the uterus once the baby's out in order to deliver the placenta. 
So with high oxytocin levels, strong contractions lead to separation of the placenta from the internal wall of the uterus and then assists in kind of clamping the uterus together to stop bleeding, like putting pressure on an open wound. If oxytocin is low during labour, contractions may actually slow or even stop, which means that labour can take longer, obviously, uh, and often leads to healthcare providers recommending interventions. Reasons why oxytocin levels may be hindered include things like an epidural because sensations of stretching as the baby is being born are actually altered and therefore that regular increase in oxytocin is disrupted. Uh, Oxytocin can also be hindered by the release of stress hormones, adrenaline and noradrenaline, and I'll flesh that out in a bit. Uh, I guess if you can picture this idea that oxytocin levels are high with orgasm, Try and imagine a couple trying to make a baby in a hospital room with bright white lights on, people watching and telling them they've got a time limit. Of course, no one in this situation is feeling high levels of oxytocin and no one's going to be orgasming in this scenario. But this is exactly what we do as we set up for birth. We have women in these bright white rooms with machinery making beeps, Strangers watching them, telling them what to do, how long they have to do it. Of course, oxytocin levels struggle. Uh, So I've said it before in other episodes, but wherever you plan to give birth, create an environment that is calm, that's comfortable, that's relaxing, and to be honest, could be somewhere you'd have sex Uh, because you want to encourage as much oxytocin release as possible to help this labor and birth progress as smoothly as possible. Some ways that you can help increase the production of oxytocin in your body during labor and birth include things like staying calm and comfortable and not feeling stressed, uh, and that's in order to avoid the release of stress hormones, creating an environment that promotes oxytocin, as I've just said, uh, and having people in that environment that you trust and feel safe with. And there's heaps of research that goes into then continuity of care, so having a care provider that you actually know and trust. Uh, Staying upright in labour so that the pressure of the baby on the cervix and pelvic floor can increase the production of oxytocin and then nipple stimulation in labour or skin-to-skin and breastfeeding once the baby's born if you're needing help with delivering the placenta because sucking at the breast or stimulating the breast increases oxytocin levels. And another thing just to point out about oxytocin, um, I've mentioned before but sometimes if your contractions have slowed or stopped or if you've had um, an epidural, you'll probably be recommended an intravenous drip of syntocinin, which is an artificial oxytocin. And this can be offered also as a method of induction of labor. Uh, But oxytocin, sorry, synthetic oxytocin, it goes through the bloodstream, but it doesn't actually enter the brain, which means that it doesn't cause the usual post-birth high that an unmedicated birth sees. So just keep that in mind. All right, so the next hormone I thought I'd touch on is beta endorphin or endorphins, and they are the body's natural painkillers. During times of pain or stress, the brain releases beta endorphin to help calm and relieve us. Uh, Levels of endorphins are often higher at the end of pregnancy and during an unmedicated labor, levels of endorphins continue to rise. It's the hormone that helps women have what's called the on-another-planet feeling or an altered state of consciousness during an unmedicated labour. High levels can cause a reduction in oxytocin, which 
can slow the labor, but actually in an unmedicated birth can be seen as a positive, natural way to help the mother cope with the pain. What you'll see is you'll see like a woman start becoming overwhelmed as she's the pain's increasing and increasing, and then somehow she just continues to cope for another hour or two. But then again, the pain becomes too much, and then somehow she gets past that and keeps pulling through. What's going on here is there's this release of endorphins that continues to get kicked in. You may have heard on the other side of women or midwives talk about how intense an induction of labor is. And part of this is because if a woman's had synthetic oxytocin inducing those contractions, she misses out on this natural endorphin hit that comes with an unmedicated labor. Also, when pain medications like morphine or an epidural are introduced during labor, levels of endorphins greatly decrease. Following the birth, beta endorphins assist in the bonding that occurs between mum and baby, uh, and the baby will actually also have high levels of endorphins from the birth process too. High levels of endorphins in labor also stimulate the release of prolactin, which prepares the mother to breastfeed once baby's born. Uh, and I'll touch on prolactin a bit more, but it's also passed to the baby in breast milk, which explains baby's milk drunk natural high following a breastfeed. And it's also thought that a drop in endorphins in the days following birth can contribute to the symptoms of baby blues. All right, so my next uh, hormones to touch on are adrenaline or epinephrine and noradrenaline or norepinephrine. So these are known as a category of catecholamines and they are basically fight or flight hormones. So these survival hormones are activated by feelings of danger or fear, and they too can slow contractions or stop labor altogether. Like animals in the wild, our bodies are made to give birth when we feel safe. And if there's any concern for our safety, naturally our body will postpone labor so that we can seek safety. Uh, You can see this clearly where some women have experienced slowing of contractions or contractions that completely stop when they've moved from laboring at home to a hospital. And again, it's that analogy of being in a safe and comfortable environment. These fight or flight hormones can also be released in response to hunger. So make sure you do eat, especially in early labor, because you need energy for the long slog that labor can bring, you know, often going on for hours and hours. Uh, Too much adrenaline can also put the baby in distress because blood flow to the uterus, the placenta, and therefore the baby is reduced, and that can lead care providers to start recommending interventions like a cesarean section. One positive effect that these fight-or-flight hormones have is during the second stage uh, where basically you get to 10 centimeters dilated and then often a woman will find that her contractions may stop and she has this kind of rest period for a bit And then there's a sudden peak in these fight or flight hormones, which combines with a peak in oxytocin levels, which quickly helps birth the baby by what's known as a fetal ejection reflex. In thinking about the example of the animal in the wild, at this stage, this fight or flight response is to speed up the birth so that the mother can quickly gather up her newborn and get to safety. To keep these fight or flight hormones at bay during that first stage of labor, there are a number of things that women can try. Uh, Things like staying calm and comfortable, as I've already said, creating an environment where you feel safe. Uh, Being informed means that you can be prepared for conversations that may arise and it helps you feel like you've got some control over what's going on. Having a trusting relationship with your care provider who knows and supports your wishes 
Uh, as I've said, a lot of research shows the benefits of continuity of midwifery care models in doing this. And then also avoiding disruption or intrusive procedures. Catecholamines can also drop quickly after the birth, which causes women to get shaky or feel cold. So being prepared with like a warm blanket to wrap around the woman will help ensure that oxytocin levels remain high, which is really essential in preventing excessive bleeding post-birth. All right, so the final hormone I'm going to touch on now is prolactin, and this is called or known as the mothering hormone and is best known basically for its role in breastfeeding. Prolactin levels in the blood increase through pregnancy, which stimulates the growth and development of breast tissue, preparing the breast for milk production. But during the pregnancy, there are high levels of estrogen and progesterone, which prevent secretion of the milk from the breasts. Uh, But after birth, there's a steep decline in these pregnancy hormones, estrogen and progesterone, which means that milk secretion is no longer blocked. As a baby sucks at the breast, prolactin levels increase, which stimulates milk production. And therefore, the more a baby sucks at the breast, the more milk will be produced. This is particularly important in establishing lactation and a good milk supply. So letting bub feed as much as he or she wants over that first six weeks is going to be so beneficial. Research has also shown that prolactin levels are higher at night. So those night breastfeeds that we dread so much, they're actually really important for keeping up your milk supply. Prolactin is also known to affect the mother's brain, inducing maternal behaviours, reducing stress, and when combined with high levels of oxytocin, which we see with the birth but also with breastfeeding, is believed to stimulate a mother's satisfaction and selfless devotion to her baby. For the baby itself, prolactin plays an important role whilst the baby's still inside the womb with development and maturation of the baby's lungs. And then once the baby's born, it's essential for newborn growth and development and helps baby adjust to life outside of the womb. Ways to promote high levels of prolactin include staying calm and relaxed. I've said that with everything, I think. Um, Keeping baby and mum together from birth and trying to initiate early breastfeeding and then continuing to respond to your baby with breastfeeding on demand. Um, Avoiding mixed feeding or supplementing and avoiding the use of dummies if possible while establishing lactation, so that's generally the first six weeks, so that your breasts basically get as much stimulation as possible. And then avoiding contraceptives that have estrogen in them because that can decrease milk supply. Uh, And also smoking is known to decrease prolactin levels too. So they are the four main hormones of labor that you kind of hear about when you're going into those antenatal or birth classes or reading books about labor and birth. I think they're fascinating, but I also think they're so important to understand so that we as mothers can be trusting what our bodies are doing and how labor actually works. It also helps us to see how complex labor and birth is and how important these hormones are in achieving an optimal birth or postnatal experience. You'll have picked up from episode 12 where I discuss pain relief options for labor and also through some of what I've touched on today that these hormones can actually be disrupted by the introduction of medications or interventions. And I thought I'd just quickly flesh out some of the effects that intervention can have on inhibiting the way hormones of labor play out. So syntocinin or synthetic oxytocin, basically during labor it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier, which means that it doesn't reach the brain. And what that means is that 
it isn't working as the hormone of love. It continues to have that physical effect on the uterus, which is to make it contract, but it doesn't bring with it that euphoric, loved-up emotions that come with the natural oxytocin. And unfortunately, there's even a negative feedback to the brain from the body's oxytocin receptors, which signal to the brain to reduce its natural production of oxytocin. Synthetic oxytocin is also shown to prevent that much-needed increase in endorphins that unmedicated labours and birth experience, as I've mentioned earlier. Uh, Another intervention would be um, painkillers, opiate painkillers, I guess, like morphine and fentanyl and other drugs used in epidurals. Um, They not only come with risks to both mother and baby, which I've explained in episode 12, but the use of these drugs, like oxytocin, inhibits the woman's own production of her natural painkiller endorphins. Uh, As I've mentioned, an epidural will inhibit the fetal ejection reflex as those stretch receptors on the mother's mother's pelvic floor are numbed and the burst of adrenaline that's needed in the second stage doesn't happen. This means that the effort of pushing out the baby may actually be greater, which can probably explain why women who have an epidural statistically have an increased length of second stage and are more likely to need assistance with birthing the baby via an instrumental delivery. Uh, Another intervention, of course, is cesarean section, and it depends, I guess, on whether it's an elective cesarean with no labour or an emergency cesarean following a labour. If no labour has occurred... Research shows significantly lower levels of all four of these hormones in mothers, which can make you question, I guess, what effect this would have on the relationship between the mother and the baby and that initial postnatal period with breastfeeding and bonding. And then for babies as well, if they've missed out on the process of labor, they've actually missed out on the catecholamine surge, which then puts them at a greater risk for having respiratory kind of issues um, and also low blood sugar levels. So depending on the type of cesarean section and even the hospital that it happens in, sometimes babies and mums will be separated at birth and the initial skin-to-skin and breastfeeding can often be set back a few hours. So as I've touched on, that can really affect the production of prolactin and oxytocin, which are both essential in the mother-baby bonding and breastfeeding. Obviously, cesarean sections are often needed to save lives, so we can't get too upset by some of the potential disruptions that happen if a cesarean section is needed. Um, But I think being aware and choosing pathways or models of care that support an undisturbed birth as much as possible um, can be really beneficial. Not everyone can have or even wants to have an unmedicated or undisturbed birth, but if it's something that you are hoping to achieve, I thought I'd quickly share some tips to point you in the right direction. So models of care, choose one that encourages and supports an undisturbed birth. So a model of care or a healthcare professional that believes women can give birth, that trusts women's bodies, um, and that supports your wishes. There's heaps of research, as I pointed out, that um, points to midwifery continuity of care models as the way to go here. So check out what options you have in your area. Uh, And then continuing on that, when choosing who you'll have as your labor and birth support, have people who, again, trust that you can do it without medication and intervention. Whether that's a doula or it's a friend or a mum who can be that support along with your partner, make sure you build a team that wants what you want. It's no good having your anxious mum there questioning your ability or suggesting pain relief when they see you wince at every contraction if that's not actually what you want. 
Uh, I've said it before and I'll keep saying it, create a birth and labor environment that feels safe, warm, comfortable, where you feel unobserved and free to do whatever your instincts tell you to do. And if you can avoid it, don't use any pain relief measures that will interfere or inhibit the natural release and working together of these incredible hormones. And then once baby's born, prioritize mum and baby being together from the moment the baby's born. Have skin to skin from birth, initiate breastfeeding within the baby's first hour of life and continue breastfeeding on demand. Okay, well, for those of you who have had a medicated birth or birth with interventions, obviously you can still have incredible birth experiences. You can feel absolute joy and bond with your baby at birth, and you can still have wonderful breastfeeding experiences. So this isn't to say you've missed out in any way. And for people heading towards labor and birth, um, I think being educated and informed is so important and can be so helpful in having a positive birth experience. However, we also need to remember that it's not just us as the mum in this birth process. Uh, And so things can go down a path that you hadn't planned or hoped for. And that's okay. Try to go into birth informed, prepared, but also flexible. Okay, so I hope that wasn't too much information. Um, I hope it all made sense. I understand it can be hard just with audio, not visual content. So if you need to save this episode and re-listen closer to your due date, definitely do that. Um, Because as I always say, being educated and informed is really helpful in equipping you to make confident decisions, whether that's around birth or parenting or whatever in life. Uh, If you've got any questions, contact me through Instagram or Facebook at Mum Will Know. And if you want to do more reading about this topic, just head to the website or the show notes as I've um, shared the links to the resources I've used in creating this episode. Otherwise, if you found this episode helpful or interesting, please give the podcast a five-star rating and positive review in Apple Podcasts and share it around to any pregnant friends you may have. I so appreciate you guys. Every one of you that listens gives me feedback and generally just encourages me along as I put together each episode. Make sure you've subscribed so you don't miss out on next week's episode. And yeah, have a great week.